All right, I'm Sarah, focused on Russian foreign policy, migration, and things like that. I'm Matt. I'm focused on Southern African history, politics, and economics in general. I'm Corey, focused on Central Asia and the Caucasus security policy. We're three friends who met in grad school, decided to turn our WhatsApp group chat into a podcast called Spicy World. We also invite friends with fresh views to talk about policy, history, international affairs, and current events. This episode's guest is Hans Gutbrod. He's a policy professional and academic based in Tbilisi. He spent over a decade uh, researching and working in the regions. He's very well-versed and uh, well-read on a, a number of subjects across the region. So we're very happy to have him. And it was a really good episode. What what would you say is your is your like main bio line right now, Hans? Because you know I'll I'll forever you know introduce you as the kiwi farmer, but I don't think that's the purpose of yeah. No, I mean maybe maybe what I would say is I've been interested. I've been mostly working in the Caucasus since 1999, with with two brief interruptions. I also do some work outside the Caucasus, but this is, has been a big focus, and. Um, in a way, my interest, uh, or, or also what I'm kind of writing about there, is also a bit of a part of that background is from a previous experience, important to me previous experience, which was uh, uh, Bosnia, which where as an undergraduate thinking I was going to be interested in being a freelance journalist and spent a fair amount of time on my quick, you know, the, the undergraduate vacations that you have, winter vacation, Easter vacation, I would go to Croatia, Bosnia, trying to afterwards retail some articles out with kind of mixed success. But that gave me, I think, um, an insight or an appreciation for something that was, I think, very formative for a particular kind of Western outlook and failures of of the West, so to speak, and acting. And so some of that I ended up working into a PhD dissertation that looked at a particular chunk, let's say, a particular kind of philosophical approach in international relations and why that made the argument why those interventions are kind of very difficult. Um, now, specifically when it came to this this kind of conflict uh, or Armenia-Azerbaijan, I oversaw for six years offices uh, at the three country office, Caucasus Research Resource Centers that had an office in Baku, it had an office in Yerevan. And so these kinds of challenges, how do you deal with that? And how do you deal with teams? And what are the things that have built up on that? That was kind of daily work or at least weekly work where somehow it would turn up and you know, you needed to come sort of keep things together. And that's also meant that I've been interested in, um, kind of interested in Armenia and then saw 2018, this moment, this revolution with a lot of interest and so what followed on from that. And so I would say right now, as I'm speaking, so to speak, the main hat I wear, because I do a few other things, but the main hat I wear is that I teach also the kind of policy related subjects at Ilya State University in Tbilisi. And while I don't really focus on international relations so much, it's a bit my academic background. And, uh, and again, kind of stuff that I've been interested in for a long time and I've done you know, over the years ended up writing a little bit about the conflict as well, sometimes with my name a bit more on it, sometimes not necessarily my name directly on it, but contributing to projects that that looked at the situation in the border communities. So it's been a big interest for a long time. All right, cool. Well, let's, can we talk about this article that you, you sent me the last week and it's timely because it's, we've been talking about the Karabakh war conflicts a lot recently because it's 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 pretty interesting to us but um you 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 have sort of maybe i don't want to say it's a more holistic approach to it but you, you're not you're you're not looking at it just as a single thing you're looking at it as part of a, a broader series of conflicts that have happened over the last few years but also just sort of as a historical trend what can you can you tell us about that a little bit and let's talk, let's talk about that yeah, so, I mean, straight out, indeed, um, the way that I describe it is just that we, that Karabakh itself, in, it, in its own way, 
has been a just a bilateral zero-sum game. Yeah? I mean, what one side wins, the other side loses, and conceived in that, it is structurally a structural deadlock. And I mean, you can win it militarily, but in terms of actually creating a peace that gives both dignity and a sense of accommodation that somehow one could live with it over a generation or two uh, or longer is within that context is impossible to achieve. And so the question then is a little bit, how do you move out of a bilateral zero-sum game? And once you see that there's a kind of a ring of zero-sum games, you, you think, is it well, is that potentially a way of reconfiguring that approach? And again, I mean, that, clearly that is a thought experiment. It is not something, not a prediction that that's immediately going to happen. But I do think in thought experiments in these situations are at least useful. And so the argument that I make is that there's, this entire ring that where you can go uh, uh, from Karabakh across to northern Syria, across the Black Sea, uh, and then uh, around Georgia again, and where you think um, if there was a larger settlement, something that I kind of is a cliched word, but a grander bargain, uh, you might actually have a chance that uh, that you can achieve a kind of settlement. And, with Armenia specifically, it is uh, just one of those points. I mean, the Armenians having lost so much what they consider their original home to the west of where they are right now, looking up to Karabakh, sorry, looking up to Ararat. Ararat is inaccessible from Yerevan. If you want to even get to its foothill, proper foothills, you have to drive for 10 hours. If you want to climb it, you have to get an extra permit. You just think, but somehow, if if you moved away from that, if you made that open, you know, if if that was not a constant wound, uh, would that not be make it easier to to rearrange around the things around uh, around the status of Karabakh, where which has become a kind of um, consolation is not is uh, is trivializing it, but is a, is in a way something. A kind of a, a reassertion of identity. So this is where where the original idea started, and then of course there's a kind of a broader um, uh, broader idea of multilateral swaps, which used to be a principle in international relations, or used to be applied in the past, but is just not something that people have talked about in the present, and that I kind of outline in that in that article. So, so th there's there's a couple of constants I think that that flow through. All of those conflicts and and the, the constants are, are Russia and Turkey and and I feel like a lot of the reasons why we're talking about these conflicts to begin with is perceived the, the reason is perceived as Russia and or Turkey um, were acting beyond their borders imperialistically trying to define some sort of spheres of influence and a react you know a result of that down the line chain of events is there are problems in a lot of countries that need fixing, let's say. Does this just then reward that sort of bad behavior, that imperialist behavior, which says, start enough fights that you're going to eventually be able to mediate out enough of them that you're going to be happy? Does that, is that, is that like a fair thought that like, that it risks, it risks validating the idea of, yeah, just fight, see what you can get. And yep. then we'll we'll talk about it afterwards. Yeah, Corey, I think that that's that concern. Yeah, is is entirely it's is entirely legitimate concern. Yeah, that you kind of you, um, and specifically with one of the most sensitive parts of what I say, and where I realize that it connects to kind of uh, uh, you know where I make the argument the reason why Russia could be tied into this today is because unlike say five or six years ago. Russia holds Crimea, but the de facto possession is not de jure, uh, de jure recognized. Yeah? Mm -hmm. And so you can talk about a grander bargain at this point in ways where 10 years ago it wouldn't have made any sense yeah? because there wasn't any, anything going on. And so that proposal that one should kind of do a barter with regards to Crimea, that is a tribute has been put on the table. I, again, I realize that this is kind of very sensitive stuff. And that you talk about, 
you know, that, that, that relates to a particular trauma in Ukraine as well that goes back to the, to the, the kind of genocidal in many ways also rooted in their own experience of genocide um, and being victims. Um, so all of that I'm, I'm kind of aware of. But the, the suggestion that had been put on the table and that's sometimes attributed to Kissinger um, of kind of making the swap where um, kind of the, the, the land grab, that's what it was, uh, the land grab of Crimea is recognized in return for uh, receiving control again over Donbass, which of course leaves out lo lots of local things, etc. That indeed would be the kind of principle of you grab two things and you get to keep one. So the lesson would be just grab two things and then some, or maybe four or five, and then somehow you'll get one of those. And so that's the reason why I think that proposal is actually a really bad one, uh, the, the kind of just Ukraine focused one. But if you then make the argument that actually there is that entire arc of instability and the prize of getting de jure recognition uh, for one of, the, one of those things that may also happen to align with self-determination if that was granted in Crimea, then it starts making a bit more sense. It's still not a great solution. You know, of course it would be much better if these places, if all of these things somehow were resolvable with a kind of EU kind of solution where a lot of the territorial conflicts go away. But, at, but the, the real thing is we've been holding out for these kinds of solutions now for one generation. I mean, a lot of those things have been open for bleeding or sometimes only just semi-bleeding wounds for 25 years. And so if I stare down the future and think, wait another generation for that and all the poverty and migration and instability and potentially future wars, then I'm not sure whether that's really kind of insistence on principle that are principles that are very, very reasonable. And there are very good reasons why we should kind of maintain certain territor territorial integrity principles. But is that really worth it with the attendant risks? And there, I'm not so sure. Yeah. And I think at least that that's something that that is worth thinking about. Mm. Okay. Yeah, Hans, one thing that I was wondering about is, you know, if we were able to go through with this grand bargain, one thing that just kept coming to mind is that we are dealing with asymmetric military forces here. So what is really the incentive to bring Azerbaijan, Turkey, Russia to the bargaining table if really this status quo is not so bad for them? You know, as Corey points out, if they can continue acting in the way that they have, then what is, what is the actual incentive to come to the table? Yeah, again, that's a, that's a very good question. Yeah, and so the, the, for, for some countries, the incentive to come to the table may not be that great. I think for Russia, it's, there's a very, very big uh, incentive because of Crimea. Uh, so the, uh, and thinking about how to patch that in. Um, in terms of um, some of those contexts, I mean, you know, just just the, the the broader principle. And again, we're we're painting in incredibly broad strokes, which is not normally the kind of work that I'm fond of. But um, the very idea of multilateralism, I think, would make it easier to tie some of the smaller countries into it, because you would say, okay, this and this and this country are around the table, and they actually have an interest in making that work. And again, I mean, I've, you know, there's Turkey's interests in north in northern Syria. There may be other Turkish interests, so to speak, that are kind of substantial. And also, I mean, that may also be a factor here. I mean, people like seizing things, yeah, or likes looking good in terms of what they can assert with military action. But I do think that there is also temptation for leadership to come across as statesmen who can, uh, who can pull certain things off that are inconceivable. So am I saying this is particularly likely? No, absolutely not. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying this is such a simple game plan. And if, if only it was going to be read, everybody would say, oh, yeah, wonderful. This is the kind of, this is the game plan. 
But what I am saying, given that the, the other options seem very, very, uh, I just don't see any likelihood that the other options kind of bring us a peaceful solution. I think this ends up being on the margins of where maybe you could see some, some of that working out. Uh, and, and again, I mean, Turkey, if it were, for example, to be involved in a piece like this, would absolutely be a dominant, uh, you know, shape the regional environment and the reason why people look back to the Congress of Vienna and make that so central because it ended up shaping something for a century, yeah? ended up shaping a kind of order for a century. And if you do that, uh, that means that you, you, you actually end up being in a pretty central position. I mean, as I say in the article, Kissinger had written his dissertation about the Congress of Vienna. So um, there is a temptation, I think, not only to to grab, so to speak, and to dominate, but to have that recognized uh, in uh, and have have that achieve a certain level of legitimacy. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, you do see Russia and Turkey already. Um, seeking to be involved in, in these types of processes. So I, I totally get that. Um, do you think that Russia would be okay with an increased role for Turkey in sort of settlements on its periphery? Well, that's a very open question. So of course, of course, you know, right now that that's the way it, it kind of looks. And as I say in the beginning of, as the article is framed right now, Right now, it looks as if there had been an arrangement or there has been an arrangement, but how stable that arrangement is, we don't know. And if that arrangement becomes unstable, then we may actually face a really, uh, a very dramatic uh, kind of um, scenario where, where nobody realistically knows where it's going to end. So we, the honest answer is we just don't know. I mean, these ententes, yeah, these rapprochements, they, they often work for a while. They sometimes end up working for quite a longer while, but they often are incredibly fragile as well and tend to be rather short honeymoons. And there's all sorts of places where Russia and Turkey could diverge um, over the next five years. You know, also considering that their succession is going to be an issue at some point, both in Russia and in Turkey. And it's in no way assured that after succession, it'll continue, uh, continue to work. So for that reason, I think actually that would actually speak in favor of a formalized settlement or thinking about a settlement that is, tries to solve the underlying problems rather than a kind of new Yalta, the idea of just spheres of influence, because that's effectively what we're moving towards right now, where certain pieces get carved up as spheres of influence rather than addressing the un underlying problems uh, that, that end up bringing in, drawing in those, those powers. Let me just say one other point, and, and this is not my kind of approach, you know, not my interpretation, but um, I think um, I think Carnegie Russia Trinin's uh, interpretation that has pointed out that really Syria is a test run for, and I think that's a really important way to understand Russia. Syria in a way is a test run for Russia for Central Asia. And the idea there is that you have um, kind of authoritarian leadership, succession issues where the son tends of a strongman always tends to be a little more difficult in how they continue to do certain things. So we have that a little bit in Azerbaijan. We have that, uh, we had that in Syria. We may have that challenge in Central Asia at any point soon. And so the, there is a possibility that you, that Turkey and Russia could, or Ankara and the Kremlin could find a longer kind, longer time arrangement because they do a couple of things. They keep the West out. They, for, Going further east, they keep China out. They keep the old elites in, and those are elites that they can work with, whereas the West has an intrinsic problem working with the Assads and the Aliyevs uh, of this world. They can somehow you know, put money in bank accounts, works for the West, but there's limits <laughs> to how that works uh, in terms of Western morality, and they keep certain kinds of Islamists down. 
So that, you know, that was the kind of old NATO formula, kind of, you know, uh, Americans in, Russians out, Germans down. And I think there's a kind of, you could translate that a little bit into the way you look at that kind of relationship. Uh, West and China out, kind of elites in, and the, 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 the really nasty Islamists down, yeah? the Wahhabis yeah? or the IS kind. The others are kind of, they can live with. And so that somehow there could be that arrangement. So again, we, the realities we don't know. I do think for that reason, the settlement makes sense. I do think they, they probably could actually live in some ways in finding some kind of arrangement, um, whether that's um, in a formal settlement or in a long-term entente, that remains to be seen. I was just going to ask you about Trenin's take right after that. So thank you for reading my mind. <laughs> What about what about on a more specific scale then? Like, let, let, what about with Georgia? Because you mentioned you mentioned the Georgia case in, in in the piece, if I recall correctly, and and the idea of what well, would you would you give up Abkhazia to get South Ossetia? As just like that's that's you know they're both supposed to be Georgia, but as of today, neither of them are. And I, I floated this just. I mean, I think many people could ask a Georgian person this question. And I think, I think nine out of 10 would say, absolutely not. I wouldn't trade one away to guarantee the other, even with zero in my hand right now. Um, and from- yeah, I think that that's right. And yeah, you know, like you would just logically, you think, no, like you have zero, you're getting a guaranteed one why are you swinging for the fence with two? But that's not how people work, right? It doesn't work like that. Yeah, look, I mean, that, that there's, that's the Overton window, yeah? And I mean, the, the, the window of acceptable options, that, that's kind of, that's there. And, and that, I, I think somewhat similarly, there is a somewhat similar dynamic as in Armenia where uh, which Jair Liberian has, has talked about more recently and has gotten a platform again, so to speak, to talk about more recently that some options just never were acceptable. And now one, in a way, suffers the consequences. Now, I don't think there's necessarily a huge downside that Georgia faces in, uh, um, in the same way as, as Armenia has to face it now. But, um, but I do think that opening up that discussion uh, and creating some space for that discussion, even just to say, okay, you know, that, that let, let's look at what these things actually mean in substance uh, is, is a worthwhile endeavor, difficult as it is. And if people, you know, having deliberated on it, uh, decide that somehow this, this doesn't work, okay. But I mean, the, again, the, the, the realities right now is uh, Georgia is building for $800 million likely in total cost, is building a tunnel under Gudauri uh, in order to have a proper road, all-weather road to, um, uh, to, to Russia. Now, that's a transfer from a poor country of, you know, you do the math, I mean, of several hundred dollars to a single infrastructure project, which uh, also does a lot of environmental damage, et cetera, et cetera. Replicating a road that otherwise could kind of exist and which you could channel uh, through other directions. And somewhat similar, I mean, the lack of train, you know, a lack of a train line through Abkhazia is a very real impediment to exports of Georgian agricultural goods. And the lack of access to Gali, uh, proper access, I mean, the, the de facto apartheid state um, that Georgians suffer through in Gali. Uh, so there, there are just very real costs. And I just, I mean, from my point of view, I just say the status quo, I, you know, I, when I say something like that, there's a kind of boosterish view where you, where you kind of say, oh, it's so easy. Uh, it's so, why don't you do this deal? 
My, my view is a little bit opposite. I think the current situation is still so utterly terrible. It is so utterly terrible for the IDPs that cannot even go back to graves. Yeah. It is so utterly terrible in continuing poverty. It is so utterly terrible in this kind of expense and lack of trade and lack of you know, going over the mountains and that the idea of a transcaucasian trail is a kind of still a bit of a joke because the one of the core chunks you cannot even go through. And in South Ossetia, it's kind of the same. It's depopulating very, very quickly. And so I think separating out and understanding how much pain and suffering and misery and the personal traumas Georgians have suffered, of course, on the other sides as well, but have suffered, I mean, 200,000, 250,000 Georgians have suffered. I think that's one thing, but again, a generation has passed. And I think the scenario that at least I look at, you know, as a German, and we've, we've had murderous campaigns in, in Europe, we've done in untold damage in other countries. And somehow today, the question of, you know, Strasbourg is, is a question that is kind of, it's just a generation that you know nobody thinks about. I mean, you drive across that and you're back, and whether this is on that, that side or this side is, I mean, is not something you care about. Now, will it potentially take another 15 years until that's there? Yes, possibly. But I do think that the discussion about that needs to, A, needs to be opened up, because once you look at it in a kind of sensible way, rather than repeating things that you repeat because you've gone through certain traumas, I would hope that, uh, uh, that, that people see some upsides. Currently, if you do that, you get, kind of, you get yelled at in social media, which is why I think a lot of people will privately say that, but will absolutely not dare do that on social media. And then the question comes, who's supposed to start at least throw these things a little bit into these conversations. And, you know, I think that's ultimately a task of people that, that maybe have the privilege of not of being able to say some of these things. But again, with due consideration of how much suffering, how much misery, how much uh, pain there is locked up in that and acknowledging that, of course, as an outsider, these things are very easy to say. I think, I think a, an important uh, element of that, in, uh, which is apparent in Georgia and was absolutely apparent in Armenia, which led to partially to the outcome in the, in the conflict was that the, the political elites are so self-invested in that as one particular part of their reason for being that, oh, we are the political elites, we are going to guarantee that we are going to keep this land, or we are the political elites, we are a hundred percent behind the idea that that land must be returned to us. And that is our platform that we always can fall back on no matter what, because it's, it's national. It's, it's just, it's, it's, it's allowed, it's based nationalism. And, and, and now for a politician who's been doing that for their entire career, because it's all the same people, it's very difficult for them to, to do an about face and say like, you know, let's, let's think about this a different way right now when they've just been screaming, there's only one answer, the answer is it's ours. Uh, for, for a generation, essentially, like you're saying, you know, 20, 30 years. Because uh, yeah, there's so no, I it's think the same faces, the same faces for 30 bit. years. Yep, yeah. I, I think that's right. I mean, there's just a lot of invested in, in that. And, um, and it's very hard to, to um, kind of open up these these spaces for 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 a kind of discussion, but um, but it's just you know th there is a bit of a Stockholm syndrome also in the region where people just are so used to being stuck be in between closed borders and somehow think that that's normal that. Uh, that you know, a, a grandchild of someone who maybe died defending Moscow, you know, can fly to Munich. Other than the pandemic, can fly to Munich. Could essentially decide now to book a ticket and could be in Munich and have breakfast there tomorrow morning, and will need three weeks to get a visa to to visit their grand grandfather's uh, grave or or site 
or memorial in that. And that this is kind of has become normal and that somehow this is, and that all of these borders being closed uh, or so many of these borders being closed and this being inaccessible. I, um, I think one just needs to occasionally kind of zoom out from that and kind of remind just how much uh, that, that, that if, if it's going to be exactly the same 20 years down the line, I don't think anyone wins other than strong men and, and corrupt, corrupt governments. Something I've been thinking about during the conversation, and it might be too broad of a question, so forgive me for that, is just in my understanding, and I guess maybe I'm biased as well, being a Westerner, a lot of these linking policies rely on Western groups to coordinate them. Because like you just said, it requires maybe to zoom out and to see things from a broader lens. And that's where some of these like UN and Western groups can provide that broader lens, can provide incentives and, and levers and leverage is, but what I'm hearing from you, and maybe I'm hearing from you wrong, is you're saying that that is not what's needed here, that it can be accomplished without a Western group. Is that what you're saying? Well, I mean, I think the West is very good at a particular kind of, uh, of solution, you know, helping somehow, uh, getting certain things going, kind of coming in with certain institutions that help provide frameworks, uh, you know, build schools, kind of capital markets, um, uh, having certain templates in place. I think in the current setup, the, there is a way in which the West is struggles uh, with that simply because the, the kind of arrangements that, for example, work in Bosnia or in Kosovo, which essentially have been protectorates, yeah, with uh, with a huge level of investment, uh, etc. They're incredibly hard to replicate in 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 other locations, and so I think there are limits and the kind of the grander uh, way out idea that I describe of the Congress of Vienna as a kind of template is just something. I mean, if you imagine that you're um, a, a working in a foreign ministry somewhere and the, that you have this idea and that you, you try and take this to your department head. I mean, you know, that's, I think that would finish your promotion prospects for the next five years because it is just outside the realm of what you can, can consider, uh, consider. So I think there's certain kind of peacemaking that the West is great at and we'll just continue doing certain things and we'll just continue talking about certain principles and there are certain kinds of peacemaking that it really, really, really struggles with. And I think this region right now, or this kind of idea of a multilateral swap is not something that the, the West can initiate. It, it's a kind of a train they could get onto if it actually runs, but otherwise just the institutional politics and the responsiveness to particular lobby groups or so means that it's much easier to repeat a formula that's been around for 10, 15 years, uh, even if that formula is at a dead end, uh, rather than accepting that the paradigm is broken. So may maybe that's the best way of putting it. The, the, the West's very good within certain paradigms, but acknowledging that a paradigm shift is happening, I think that's, that can be very, very difficult, um, unless for particular reasons, the powers that are kind of the, 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 the gravity that, that kind of shifts against that paradigm is very strong. I'm curious to know what, what's, the, what's going on with this conflict that precludes the West from being effective. And is it just the fact that up until now they have not aggressively been involved and been exceedingly effective? Is that why you think that they're not effective? Why, why, yes, good question. Why has the West not been so effective in this conflict? I mean, to start out with, <laughs> the it, it, it was a Gordic knot in the, in the first place. Yeah, so there was not, I mean, it wasn't the, the very idea that, that the, the West, in inverted commas, whatever that is at this point, can swoop in and solve these things 
uh, no, I mean, that's just not the way that works. Yeah? I mean, that, that happens either on the ground or it happens in the Balkans after, after long and painful experiences and after learning that uh, uh, after a Srebrenica happens and you, go, you, you then go, well, maybe we won't let that happen again and then you get involved. And so um, I would say the West is, uh, if we talk about this idea of multilateral swaps as a solution, um, as a potential solution to this, in, in the portfolio of options, um, I think from a Western side, one would be worried A, about, a, about the precedent, uh, so uh, B, about rewarding kind of aggression. Um, and since that has led to a consensus that you don't want to open the Pandora's box of multilateral swaps, for example, in, in the Balkans, uh, and since these are highly, highly coordinated policies with many, uh, with many stakeholders, I think that ends up being a super tanker. Yeah, it's very, very hard to change course. And the paradigm shift is something that more likely is going to happen on the ground. And then potentially the West will find it easier to get on board. Now, the reality of all of this is you know, you will talk to diplomats and they will privately agree with what you, what, what you say. But of course, they would never be able to say this in their own capacity because there just is a certain line. So this idea of you know, making, coming to some kind of accommodation uh, is always gets made a little bit from, from the sides. Yeah? And, and I think... Uh, I think once the paradigm has shifted, the West is often very, Western institutions are often very good at working out what that entails, but actually shifting the paradigm, uh, that's not how those institutions, that, that's not their strength. And for good measure too, yeah? I mean, they, they provide stability, they, they're very good at, at kind of making little things work. Uh, and that's mass coordination. And I think that's been an overwhelming success, something like the EU, but don't expect the EU to be really quick to, to kind of update its policies in difficult areas. Hmm. I see what you're saying. I was gonna raise the story of the linkage policy in Southern Africa in the eighties um, for listeners who might not be familiar. So the policy was so Cuba was in Angola, Cuban troops were in Angola to the tens of in the numbers of tens of thousands. South Africa still held Namibia as part of South Africa. And so what a, a group of Western diplomats led by the, the US, their strategy was to say, okay, Cuban troops would have to leave Angola, Namibia becomes independent. And and that was the um the trade-off. And so it included negotiations between the Soviet Union, Cuba, Angola, South Africa, uh, yeah. Namibia, and the UN and all of these figures. Um, no. But it took a long, but to your point, it took over a decade for this to actually happen. And some people might argue that the real reason why inevitably it did happen in the early 90s was because of the fall of the Soviet Union, and not necessarily because of the negotiations and the leverage um, that was being employed over the 80s. So I was just raising that story as you know a comparison to what we're talking about now. No, Matt, you're you're entirely right. Yeah, and it's it's entirely possible that I'm just that uh, that that this the West could actually uh, get uh, you know get on board with that for also somewhat selfish reasons, because I do think that they realize that, for example, sanctions against Russia will might be quite hard to uphold uh, internally over the longer term. Um, and also because, you know, that's something that I've written about uh, that, that was in the original article. Uh, I'll say something about the original article maybe in a moment, but the, uh, that, um, one, one just realizes that these conflicts, if things go wrong, could very well punch through and destabilize, uh, destabilize the kind of the core as well. So it's possible that that happens. It's just 
you know, I, I get very different responses. I mean, I, I didn't put this, I didn't put this article on, on social media in a very big way, uh, just because of the, the usual reasons. And, you know, I get some responses from some people that I've worked on this that go, yeah, you know, that's actually really interesting. And then I also kind of send it to some ambassadors where they're kind of former ambassadors who kind of polite, respond very politely and kind of, you know, and kind of interesting and kind of clearly, you know, thinking a little bit that I've just kind of um, kind of totally misbehaved at their daughter's wedding. That's kind of the, and they're kind of responding politely to my transgression. Um, so it, it is possible and it's worth remembering that some of the very big crises that the West was in often have precisely been uh, resolved through linkages, Cuban Missile Crisis. And you didn't talk about it openly, but there was a kind of quid pro quo that was in the background. Uh, so I think the key point is just to recognize and reiterate, I do think these other things are deadlocked or the, the current approach is deadlocked. We need to kind of accept that and then ask the question, do we want to continue 30 years? And maybe you know, I've, I've taken the grandest and in some ways, I mean, the, the most... Uh, 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 wide-ranging, to put it kind of politely, uh, version of that, but potentially you could kind of scale that a little bit down and make it much more local and make it more realistic in that way as well. Mm. Yeah, very interesting. That is true. Um, what, which conflict do you think could be a starter to this kind of grand bargain? So if we were to choose one or two that could really kickstart this kind of process, which ones would you say are the most possible to move forward with? Yes, yeah, Sarah, that's a very good question. Which, which conflict would be easiest to move forward with? Um, I do think just because the situation around Karabakh is both so in flux and there are so many questions to resolve around it and uh, what, what, you know, what's entailed with opening, uh, the, uh, opening the borders and uh, Azerbaijan with the, the awful atrocities that we've seen, not only on the Azerbaijani side, but from what we see right now overwhelmingly on the Azerbaijani, the evidence that we have overwhelmingly on the Azerbaijani side. I do think that as some Azerbaijani political analysts have urged themselves a gracious kind of peace and uh, maybe some of you are some of you or some of the listeners have tuned in yesterday to the talk at Columbia at the Harriman Institute uh, with the Azerbaijani writer, Alice uh, who said, who again made that point. I mean, getting the Armenians up from their knees. So I think that that's the point that's most in flux right now and where there might be most of an opportunity to think of gestures that are relatively cost-free uh, on the other side and could still have an impact where one goes, okay, that, that the, the pain is real, the suffering is real. And of course, you know, one should also really remember that this is, a, as I've said in other places, it is a time of deep grief. I mean, there are many families that don't yet know, haven't had their, their sons or their fathers uh, back that are maybe still on a battlefield somewhere. So all of that's in flux, but maybe uh, Karabakh could be a kickoff point. But if not, I mean, zooming out on the larger, on some of these larger things uh, can still make sense because this is one point that I, that I put in the original article. It's just very briefly mentioned in this one. People look at the Congress of Vienna often as, oh, you know, th this is just kind of 19th century aristocrats uh, being 19th century aristocrats and kind of being statesmen and wanting to be statesmen and all of that. But the reality is it actually paved the way for lots of positive changes. Uh, it opened up the uh, um, it, it opened up the, the traffic on the Rhine and the Danube and so helped to integrate trade. And something that almost nobody knows today, uh, it was there was a condemnation of slavery 
1814, 1815. It still took, of course, as we well know, it took you know, more than half a century until that arrived and the, the underlying problems aren't resolved there. But you know, if you really think, what are the fundamental, why are so many people in those villages living in poverty and in misery? And what are these things? And then you think, should we really play the exact same geopolitical game for the next uh, 20 or 30 years? And might there not be something where we could actually fix some of those things? And that may, on the one hand, sound like an idealistic flight of, you know, flight of the imagination. But you know, Metternich wasn't an idealist, <laughs> and Tyron wasn't ideal, was not an idealist, and Tsar Nicholas wasn't either. I mean, these were kind of in many ways rather retrograde, uh, self-interested people, but still they recognized that the fundamental challenge that they had, that there was a gap between, a legitimacy gap between de facto control and de jure arrangements, and that somehow you needed to recreate legitimacy in order to build a prosperous order. And I do think we face some of the same challenge. Now, copy-paste will never work, but at least having a conversation about this and zooming a little bit out and saying this, this doesn't need to continue. Um, and in particular, the peace will need to come from within the societies. And if you will, there is a, you could almost coin the term there, there have been one of the bright spots in Karabakh. There's lots of terrible stuff. But one of the bright spots in Karabakh was that on both sides, there, will, there were kind of, if you want to call them that way, moral entrepreneurs. There are people that took risks with making a moral argument. And I think strengthening those people and, and also showing them that there are other, that there have been, that, that the, the narrative, oh, we just have to continue that way because if we don't, uh, if we don't insist on our claims, we're just going to lose. That's, I think, a potentially a chance of widening the debate. Uh, and that may take 10 years, that may take 15 years. And what I'm saying right now, I'm, you know, I have absolutely no illusions that, I'm, that there's any more than a tiny drop in a, in a big ocean. Uh, and what I'm putting forward is just one out of maybe 15 or 20 scenarios that people can generate. But again, the idea is let's generate those scenarios. My guess is, is, is Northern Cyprus. That's the easiest one. Like yeah. if you wanted to trade something, if you wanted to just do some horse trading, there's gotta be a way to do a horse trade with Northern Cyprus. That's just my, that's my hot take on that. Yeah, yeah. And look, I mean, this is where I think, I mean, you know, a podcast like yours or some outlets are also just contributions because because these things end up kind of having, you know, putting ideas out there in, in, in ways, in long form ways, uh, I think is, a, is just a contribution. And, you know, and somebody else maybe kind of takes off on something like that and afterwards is gonna go, you know, actually that's not it. But maybe that configuration can, can, be a, can take us further. I think that's, um, that's a more useful debate than when will Georgia join NATO or uh, you know, that, that yeah. kind of stuff. These, these sorts of ideas are, are good to discuss and to jump off of. And, um, you know, I, I think because of that, your article is a good contribution to the discussion and just, you know, the way that people can look at it, pros and cons, is is very good. Great. Well, thank you. And I should say maybe one small thing because it's a in a tiny way, it's an article a little bit out of time, and then it, it had a strange history. I wrote I, in two thousand. 18, early 2019, I went to Armenia, talked to people about what, what is this new thing about peace? And, and it just became clear that there wasn't any substantive thing on the table. And so the, the original version of the article was actually written in July 9, 2019 saying, you know, it might be a good idea to think about this because the consequences if this doesn't work out are, are not great. And of course, you know, I'm not, many people said this at the time, as Libaridian said, it, it was predictable and predicted uh, 
And then we ended up kind of, um, uh, and, and the, the journal at the time just wasn't particularly interested. And so we ended up updating it in the current context. I, I did worry a little bit that it might come across as kind of carpet baggerish, uh, if that's the right word. And again, I mean, just with due respect to how how much of a horrible time this is to, to anyone, just for the people that have suffered so much. Um, and there is something that I think one just needs to be very clear on when, when writing these things, that it's easy to write certain words, but the, but the reality of people suffering through that is a very, very different reality. And that's maybe not something that came through in the article. And, and I do think that this politics of, not politics, but the, how can I say, the a, a degree of humility that one also needs to bring to all of this because, because those are real lives. That's, that's something that's just important to me personally. And that's maybe hard to convey when you put out something like that, that just looks like I'm taking a paper and pencil and here's some brush strokes. That, that's not quite the spirit of the exercise uh, or, there was something else that I also had in my mind um, in that. But again, I mean, hope, as, as we've said in another context, I mean, the coal and steel community in Europe was, I mean, when people start, first started talking about that, that, I mean, that must have been, that must have seemed totally crazy. And I'm sure there were other interesting ideas as well. And I hope that, that many of these good things and the bright spots and some of these incredibly courageous people like writers, this writer in Azerbaijan, Ailesli, yesterday, or some of the voices in Armenia, that they will be able to kind of push forward in the near future as well, because they've, uh, they've really shown huge amounts of courage and, and in a very difficult time. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. If you want to follow us on Twitter, you can do so at spicyworld underscore pod. You can also check out our website, spicypod.com. There you can see all of our old episodes. Also, drop us a line if there is a topic or a guest that you think that we should cover, or if you yourself are interested in being on the show. Thanks.